0: Welcome to an audio stream from San Marino Community Church, featuring our own pastoral staff and various guest speakers. Morning, church. Are you guys rambunctious? Please say yes. I love a rambunctious church. You'll have to forgive me this morning. I'm a... Dealing with the, the head cold that's going around, so my voice sounds like I have a nasty habit, but I don't. I'm just sick. So have mercy on me. Our text today is from uh, Psalms, which is a big book of poems, right smack dab in the middle of your uh, your Bible. So if you're if you're getting into your Bible, it's right in the middle. But we're going to Psalm two. Here now, the Word of God. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take their own counsel against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds asunder and cast their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs and the Lord has them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them. In his fury, saying, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell you the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in like pieces. Dash them to pieces. Like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and trembling. Kiss His feet, or He will be angry, and you will be and you will perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Happy are all who take refuge in Him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. You guys, today we get into the book of Psalms. <laughs> Woo! Yeah. We get the benefit of actually looking at an entire psalm cuz some of the psalms can get pretty lengthy, but this one's a really great one cuz it's it's only about 12 verses long and it's doable. And the cool thing about this psalm is it's a coronation psalm. So if you don't know much about the psalms, they're like a whole bunch of songs or a book of poetry. But this psalm is particular because it's a coronation psalm, which means they would have read it, would have gotten into it around the time that they crowned a king. A coronation ceremony is much like the uh, inauguration ceremony for for we Americans who crown our our president, who crown our president, (laughs) who promote our our, our elected official to president, whereas in a monarchy we, we crown them and that would be a coronation ceremony. Psalm 2 has a really interesting structure and a bunch of poetic devices that work within it. And just to give you guys a little head up, I'm about to go full Bible nerd on you. Because we got to get into this, and I love it, and it's weird. But you guys, you're gonna take that trip with me, right, Rambunctious Church? Yeah, yeah I like that. All right. If you zoom out a little bit, you can see that the psalm is essentially four different strophe. And a strophe is like a group of words, much like a poetic stanza, except there's no rhyming, there's no uh, requirements, much like a stanza. Instead, you've got these sophies. And if you look, if you kind of zoom out on your own pages, you can see they're all about the same size, right? So we've got these four different parts, these four different groupings of words. They're all about the same lake. And if you look closer, you can see relationships between the different strophes. For instance, let's go to verse, oh yes, look, it's already up here. This is great. Let's take the first two strophes. There's a line-by-line contrasting correspondence between the first and second. For instance, the first Adonai's derisive laughter here in verse 4, you can see the second blue arrow down, stands in a sharp contrast with the plotting of the rebellious in verse 1. And second, Adonai's threatening speech counteracts the military positioning of the rebellious rulers in verse 2. You you see how they're kind of talking back and forth with one another? Third, the quotation of Adonai's speech challenges the quoted resolution of the rebellious rulers in verse 3. You see how it's kind of in dialogue with itself? Secondly, We can go to the second one over here. There's a chiastic structure, and that's a weird biblical Hebrew term for a a poetic device in trying to illustrate a point. And it's easiest to, to follow by noting each setting of the psalm. If we can go to the second one, the second slide. You guys might be able to see it. It opens the earth. It opens on the earth and then moves to heaven and God and his anointed king, and then goes back to the earth. So you can see it's kind of, if you can draw an arrow, it's kind of like pointing a thing. Hey, pay attention to what God's saying to us and how that affects us. And I find this psalm uh, and this ancient poem is particularly interesting because it highlights kingship. The psalm opens up the fact that, sorry, the fact that it is a coronation ceremony psalm, and that it speaks to king, the kings of this world, as well as God's anointed king, and in large part, is a, is a giant reference point to God's chosen king, himself, Jesus Christ, the king of kings. Church, this, is a psalm, this psalm opens up the topic for kingship for us, lordship, or leaders, leadership in our lives. This psalm opens up who Jesus is, and maybe it opens up who Jesus is in a way that we don't usually like to think about Jesus. You see, we like to think about Jesus as our friend. We like to think about God, our Father, and we like to think about the Holy Spirit who is present always and is our comforter and our strength, but do we know Jesus the King? Are we comfortable with God, our Lord, and our Holy Spirit who is a sovereign and a judge? Today I want to talk about three things. There is a King, we hate the King, and we need the King. First, there is a king. I always find the whole concept. Jenny actually stole my thunder here, uh, but she she pointed out beautifully the the whole concept of kings and kingdom and royalty in America is pretty foreign to us. Uh, we're born out of that world, um, but we have we've never really interacted with that, and it's it's hard to understand the prestige and the honor and the absolute rule that is all tied up in that. On the one hand, there is this classical and political sense of kingship and monarchy, right? where you uh, bow down in homage and honor and obedience to someone by rights. But on the other hand, the Bible also uh, begs this question, who is Lord in your life? I know, right? <laughs> who sits on the throne of your heart? And both of those aspects of kingship are a play here in this psalm. We know the feelings of looking up to someone. It starts with our parents, then moves on to maybe a mentor or a teacher or something, and eventually it'll settle pretty much always throughout our life on someone who's either older and cooler than us, right? I looked a, up to this guy uh, named Chris Myworm when I was in high school, and he was a couple years older than me, and he was my small group leader, and he is just this fantastic guy who just kind of took a, a role um, in my life and let me look up to him, and he, he, he taught me how to shave, and I called him my Jedi Master. It was great. Um, and he was a much better influence in my life than, a lot, than maybe some of my earlier influences in life and in where I was uh, fighting and skipping school and stealing candy from 7-Eleven and selling it. I was an entrepreneur, to say the least. I'm sure many of you can identify with some of the people that you looked up to in your life. Amen? You guys with me? All right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure you can point out a few of those people. We look up to basketball players, movie stars, political figures, and, and, and musician, music, musical sensations all the time. We look up to people, and that's completely normal and fitting. And perhaps that is normal and fitting because we were created to look up. And this all speaks to this memory trace in the human race telling us that there is a king. And deep down inside, in the heart, in the root of our being, we know that we are meant to serve that king. And if we reject that idea that, that there is some sort of like true king, it doesn't matter because we'll still, we still recognize that we have to put the crown on someone. When we, when we move past our natural inclinations to move up, we start to consider who it is that actually holds court in our lives. Who actually has the last word regarding what we do and where we go and what we say? Who rules from the throne in your heart? Who holds court? Usually it's you. Amen? Usually it's us, right? We take up the mantle of leadership and crown ourselves. There is a king, church. And here in Psalm 2, we read that God has appointed his king. He says right there in verse 6, you guys can read it. I have set my king on my holy hill. God recognizes that there are earthly kings. And then he says, that's all good and fine, but I am anointing my king over and above them. I'm anointing my king over and above you. Which brings us to point two, we hate the king. As soon as we recognize the gravity of the Claims that Jesus makes upon us in our lives, we immediately say, "Whoa, wait, 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 wait! You mean what? So uh, you mean I'm I'm not the ruler of my life? I'm not the one who has the ultimate ending decision? We get offended. We turn our backs and we start to plot, much like the kings earlier in this in this psalm in the first trophy, right? You see, we hate the king because. We are under the belief that we are in control of our own lives. Here in America, we live with this belief in inalienable rights, which are things that you cannot be taken away from you and you cannot give up. Things like uh, the right to breathe or the right to believe or uh, the right to make a choice. No one can take those things from you. You always have a choice. The Constitution lays it out in the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? You awake? You awake? We can even hear in our political climate right now that some figures are claiming that Americans, all Americans should have the right to health care. You can hear it in our dialogue and how we speak to ourselves. And we love that dialogue because it nurtures this idea within us that says we are our own. George MacDonald, who was a, a pastor and writer in Scotland, he was actually a, a heavy influence for my favorite author, C.S. Lewis, wrote, this famous quote that there is one central conviction in hell and that is I am my own this is the one thing that everyone in hell rallies around it's the one thing that actually creates hell and it can create hell for me and you too in this life in your life in your marriage in your in your neighborhood in your workplace in your community it says i am the captain of my own soul i am the master of my own fate take off these chains we read in verse 3 let us burst their bonds asunder and cast their cords from us another word or another translation for the word cords here can be translated as fetters or even better a yoke take off this yoke That's the cry of the kings. And the kings are actually less angry that there is a king. Remember remember point one, there is a king. They're less angry that there is a king and more angry that they are not the one who is ruling. We hate the king because we want the crown. Amen? Jonathan Edwards wrote a whole book about this titled, Man, Natural Enemy of God. Romans 8, verse 7 says the same thing. For this reason, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Yes, there is a king, but we want to be king. Not you, God, us. Let me be clear. I don't think we hate the idea of God. Remember, point one, there is a king. It's natural for us to look up to stuff. We readily recognize that there is someone above us to look up to, but we want a friend. Remember, we want our friendly Jesus, not the biblical God. The biblical God lays claims on us, saying in Leviticus, you are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. And again in verse Peter, which actually quotes this part in Leviticus. Be just as he who called you is holy. So be holy in all that you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. We hate God because he is a great God, and he demands greatness from his people. He owns us, and we hate that. We don't, like that. we don't like that at all. <laughs> and this, frankly, isn't really uh, just for agnostics or, or atheists either. Christians do this all the time. Flannery Connery wrote this beautiful quote. Here, there was a, a, a deep, black, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. And the insight here, she gets it, many people... Use religion to avoid the King Jesus. The Religious tend to hide behind morality and clean living. Let me say that again. The religious tend to hide behind morality and clean living. Let me ask you this. Do you feel like you're doing okay? Do you feel like you're, you're a decently good person? Church? You guys feel like you are reasonably moral people? Yeah, I mean, I mean I'm mean, i not perfect, but I'm not that guy, right? I'm not, I'm not, I don't have all of my ducks in a row, but at least I'm not her, or I'm not in that situation, or I'm not those people, or to believe, do you believe that you are such a helpless sinner that the only thing that can save you is the grace of God? Are you hopelessly abandoned to the mercy of God, a king, and his grace, knowing the true depths of your sin and your brokenness? And this brings us to point three. We need a king. Amen? We can recognize that there is a king, and even that we hate the king because we're the ones who want the crown, but if you take those two points in conjunction with one another, no matter who the king is, it's pretty evident that we need one. Amen? But here's the trick. There is no refuge from the king. There is only refuge in the king. It is only in the king, dumb. It is only in the kingdom that we find ourselves. It is only under the rule that we find ourselves free and liberated. It is within confinement that we find spaciousness. In service that we find freedom. Under discipline. That we find skill and identity. If you pull off the yoke, church, you'll sink and you'll drown. Think about it. You want to become a great musician? What do you do? Yes. Yoke yourself. Yoke yourself to the piano. As time comes on, the yoke becomes a refuge and a freedom and a medium of self-expression. You want to be a great writer? What do you do? Yoke yourself to the page and find liberation and freedom in telling the stories that shape how we think of ourselves and others. You want to live more deep, more thoughtful, more meaningful life? Yoke yourself to actually developing your spirituality, to deepening the rich heart that lies within you. Stop. Stop thinking that the Sunday school lessons that you learned when you were 14 were essentially the whole of this whole thing we call church. Stop banking on that. Stop being satisfied with this standoffish relationship with God because some church burned you in the past. There's so much more going on in this thing. There's so much more. And it begs us to ask tougher questions. God can take it. He's a capable king. Amen? Amen. We hate the king because we want to make all the decisions. But if you want to make good decisions, why not devote yourself to discipline under the guy who gives you free choice in the first place? Amen? Amen? To this day, I'm a little sad and a little offended and a little bitter because when I was in middle school, I took a year and I learned the clarinet. And man, I wish I had learned the drums. Because I wouldn't have stopped after a year. Believe it or not, I'm a white guy with rhythm. I would have been good. I would have been like Brandon up here. Just killing it. Smoking them. I would have stayed with it. I would have been a drummer. My wife actually loves dancing. We go dancing all the time. She loves dancing. But she feels like she only started like a few years ago. Because... She was taken out of dance classes early in her life, and, man, she wishes she she had stuck with dance, yoked herself to dance early in life, because, oh, how great would that have been? The thing about a yoke is that we hate it in the present, right? But we become so thankful for it over time. We become indebted to it. Often we blame the disciplines that were forced upon us when we were younger, on what and who shaped us to be who we are today. We need a king. Discipline from the outside yields healthy, a healthy crop of, of self-discipline within us. The yoke leads to virtue, and virtue leads to character and self-discovery. One of the best things about the King Jesus is that he desperately wants to show us who we are. Some of our greatest needs as human beings are are, are that we need to know that we count and that we're loved. There is no refuge from the king. There is only refuge in the king. And there is no place better than the kingdom that reminds us that we count. But not only that we count, but we are vital to the kingdom. That we are not only loved by the king, but our king died for us. There's no better place than the kingdom that reminds us that we belong. There's no greater sense of love than from the king who loves us. We need a king because we need refuge. I want to end with this. I want to end with a question and a, a challenge. Uh, so if you can, take out your little your, your notepads or your bulletins or even pull out your phones and, and, and create a little document or a little note. And I want you to ask yourself, where do I need a king? Do you need a king to rule over your relationships? Do you need a king in your marriage? Do you need a king in your relationships at work? Do you need a king in your relationship with work? How about a governor over your mouth? A yoke for your tongue that runs wild and hurts people. How would you like the words of your mouth to reflect royalty rather than heartache? How would you like a king over your time and your schedule or is your schedule still your schedule What do you value Where do I need a king Do you need some lordship in your over your finances How about a lord over your body your diet and your fitness and your health How about with your family Do you need a king in your life to replace you as a king in your life? And if so, here are a couple, uh, four four different things that will help you treat Jesus as a king. First, obey. You cannot obey Jesus the king if you listen to him only when it's convenient and comfortable for you. You obey all the time. You have to obey even when you don't want to. And if you don't know the marching orders... Read this and get to know the king that you wish to serve. He says, be honest. Always. He says, honor him. Always. He says, love your neighbor. Always. Not just when it's convenient for you or when you're going to get credit for it. Amen? Amen? Number two, accept. Which is to say, you must know best. God, you must know best. Not just like a complacent acceptance, but rather like Job, who says, I don't sense God's presence anywhere, but he knows my way. And when God has tested me, I will come forth pure as gold. He submits to the fact that his circumstances are purifying, even if they are hard. He trusts the king, and so should you. He accepts Jesus as king, Number three, rely. If you add anything to Jesus as a requirement for being happy, that's your king. That's your real king. I'll be happy if. Jesus, I'll come to you if you get me this or you do me this favor or make this a reality in my life. That's your real king. He's a means to an end more. Who comes first, you or the king? You have to rely on your king. You have to recklessly abandon. I love uh, um, Oswald Chambers' devotional. He uses this term all the time, recklessly abandon. I just think of Peter throwing himself off the boat to go swim to the shore, or even recklessly abandoning and going and walking on the water. You have to recklessly abandon. You have to depend. And number four, Expect. You have to expect a king. Do you treat him like a king? Are you saying, or are you saying, nothing will change? I can't rely on God because I just don't expect him to show up and I don't expect him to care or get involved. Jenny and I get the house clean when we have friends coming over. What do you do when the Lord's coming over? Right? You have to expect a king to come over. Who are you expecting? And expect that also he's going to show up, because he will. John Newton wrote this, Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such none can ever ask too much. Your requests aren't too big for him. Remember, he's bigger than us, so bring it. If you aren't asking much of your king, you must not have much of a king in the first place. Amen? Amen. There it is, church. Obey, accept, rely, expect, and ask yourselves, where do I need a king? Let's let today change the way we think about Jesus, not just as a friend, but as a king. And not just a king, but the king. And let's bow down accordingly. Let's pray. Master, our Lord and God, You alone are the most holy king and ruler of the universe. We pray to you in expectation of receiving your mercy, your peace, and your justice. Grant us protection and forgive us our sins and yoke us to discipline in your kingdom so that your royalty might shine forth from our countenance and reflect to the whole universe that you are the one true king. Amen. Go ahead and stand. We're going to sing all my song together. Um, the words to this will probably be new, but you know the tune. It's um, old, lane die. It's da 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 So, yeah. no, You have to sing along. So, here we go.